Digital, Digital Ten Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. And welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for joining us for another episode and another week. We want to thank everybody who supports this show through Patreon. Simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link, like, sign up. It's a dollar a month. There's some other plans, but we don't care about those. We'll be happy with the dollar a month plan. So if you want to support what we do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and sign up for Patreon. Welcome back, Jeff Copsetta. How are you doing, friend? Yeah, good. I'm excited to be back. Sorry I missed last week, but you know how it goes. Eh, it's all good. You super busy guy. You, you brought new life into the world. You're bettering yourself. You're um, trying to be a little delicate about this. You're helping other people with their projects and trying to get that off the ground. And so you've just been a super busy guy. Yeah. But uh, returning to the podcast, it, it feels like it's more than just episode number two because you've done an episode of her show. I've done an episode of her show. And uh, so we've all been together a few times now, but returning to the show. You know her from Instagram as well as her YouTube channel at History Chick 1941, host of History Behind the Page, Sarah the History Chick. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? You know, an effort because I knew you were going to talk about the USS Indianapolis tonight. I was going to wear mm-hmm. my Navy jacket, but it's just too damn hot here. So that lasts <laughs> all five and a half minutes. I put forth an effort. It's the only time I actually get to wear that thing. I don't even have a Navy impression. I just bought this at, at uh on a World War II impression because it was on sale and it works great in the rain. But anyhow, how are things with you? Things are good. Things, uh, I don't know, same old, same old, just doing the the history behind the page and posting history nerd stuff. That's pretty much my life. So she says <laughs> very that, exciting. She, she says that all nonchalantly, Jeff, but you know, from yeah. as well as I do from watching on Instagram and TikTok, her, she's just constantly putting out content. It's always video after video, after interview, after interview. So things seem to be blowing up over there. Yeah. I mean, she's sensational on what she does and she's got congratulations on 2,500 viewers because that makes you her followers. Uh, I guess that makes you about, 250 times cooler than than me at least so (laughs) uh yeah we we love what you do and um you're really good at it so that that definitely helps Uh, thanks jeff (laughs) well on the inaugural episode that you had joined us with we found out late in the podcast that your your little niche your little thing the little bug in your ear we all have one is Mm -hmm. not only like you know not a broad stroke like navy or this particular it's the uh, USS Indianapolis. And so we thought, well, it's close enough to the anniversary. And so why not bring you on, make you do all the heavy lifting? Me and Jeff will lean back and just collect the praise and uh, have some content and let you do all the work. So without yeah. any further ado, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> no, real quick uh, before, you, what what is it about the USS Indianapolis? How did that become your little your little side corner amongst this big hobby? So I was, I don't know, it was probably back in like 2017. I was on a a documentary binge on Amazon Prime. And at the time I was on a USS Arizona binge and watched a bunch of documentaries on there. And then uh, Prime was like, you know, documentaries like the one you just watched. And they had a documentary called the USS Indianapolis, the legacy. And I was like, oh, you know, that 
sounds the USS Indianapolis. I was like, I've heard of it. I don't know the story. And I said, it looks really familiar. Well, a year prior, my mom had bought me a book at, um, at Goodwill called in harm's way by Doug Stanton. It's the story of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. So I was like, Oh, well I'm going to watch this. And then I went on those magnificent rabbit holes mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, watched the documentary, the legacy and heard the survivor stories and then watched the documentary because Paul Allen found the remains of the USS Indianapolis oh. in August of 2017. And then, uh, then I watched the movie mission of mission of the shark where Stacey Keach plays captain McVeigh. It's about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. And for some reason, I just got so hooked <laughs> with the USS Indianapolis for some reason. And and then cross yeah. po- cross platform promotions kicked in, and you start getting some suggestions from the scene from Jaws when they're sitting in the booth getting drunk on your yeah, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Like, What's this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how my little weird obsession with the Indianapolis started. Well, that's the thing about obsessions. That's you know that's why we call it the the little bug in here because for everybody it's something different. You just You'll be reading something and all day, some reason that one particular thing, and then you read more and then there's something even deeper and then deeper. And so, um, mm-hmm. that's the fascinating thing about the hobby that we all, um, care about so much. So why don't you go ahead and, uh, school us, if you will, on the USS Indianapolis. Yeah. So the anniversary of the sinking is, is Saturday, July 30th, um, is when the Indy was sunk. So if most people don't know, the USS Indianapolis, uh, she was a Portland-class uh, cruiser. She uh, had been in the war for a really long time. She did the bombardment in Okinawa. She was at the uh, Battle of the Philippine Sea. She was uh, damaged by a kamikaze pilot, by a kamikaze plane. Like, just so much stuff that India's been through before she was tasked with this mission that ended up being her last mission. And um, after the Trinity test in the Manhattan Project, the successful test of the atomic bomb, the USS Indianapolis was chosen to deliver the key components of the atomic bomb to the island of Tinian. Um, It was extremely top secret. Not even the captain really knew what was on board. Uh, they, after that, they were going to be starting to do training exercises for what they thought was the inevitable invasion of Japan. So, uh, they ended up traveling, uh, to the Island of Tinian and made it in record timing. Uh, they were probably going about 33 miles per hour, uh, which is really fast for, (laughs) for a ship. Sure. And, uh, you know, they made it to Tinian. Well, sorry, let me, let me back up a little bit. Sorry. Sure. Um, Captain McVeigh got the orders to transfer this top secret package. At the beginning, he was like, okay, I'm transferring this top secret package. It's very important. It's under lock and key. It's under armed guard. Uh, You know, July, 1945, he goes, can I get an escort? And the Navy told him no, because the Navy said that they had been doing uh, recon missions. There was no uh, Japanese enemies. They, they, he didn't need an escort. He's like, I think I need an escort. And I, he asked a few times and he was told no. And so they load up the package. They sail to Tinian. They get there pretty quick. They get there by July, uh, July 26 and drop off the package. Well, little did they know they were carrying about half the United States supply of uranium on the USS Indianapolis. 
Nobody knew exactly what was in the package. The guys on the ship thought it was 50,000 rolls of scented toilet paper for General <laughs> MacArthur. They, they were having bets. They thought it was new airplane engine parts, just so many different stuff. So it was just kind of a, a regular mission. No, they didn't come across any Japanese enemies or, or anything in the water. And well, they went to Tinian. Let me pause. Oh, yeah, let me pause right there real quick. Hindsight being what it is, um, is there any theories by the armchair quarterbacks of today, the modern day historians, the people who have time to look into research? Is there any conspiracy theories, any just out there heads up of why people think that the Navy or even the Army Air Corps was reluctant to provide any sort of cover for these guys? There's no conspiracies per se that I've come across. Uh, it's a lot of the same repetitiveness of, of just laziness, of miscommunication, of just, you know, people, it was, it was towards the end of the war. They didn't know the war was going to be ending. Everybody was battle fatigued. They were this drug, drug out war. Um, I, it, laziness, miscommunication, that's kind of the, the big thing. I didn't uh, know if maybe they thought, well, A, the more cover we have, the more boats out there, the more likelihood of getting spotted. B, maybe the more cover, the slower. If we send them out there by themselves, they can just haul ass and get there quicker. I didn't know if it was something as simple as that. Or maybe they thought, well, if things go south and this thing blows up, we don't want to lose a bunch of uh, equipment surrounding it. I mean, I don't know yeah. what the, the stable but the, Go ahead. I don't know how stable uranium is, too, if it gets you know hit by a, a torpedo or anything. But you would think that if the Navy knew, you know, that the higher ups knew, they're like, uh, they are they are carrying the key components of the atomic bomb of Little Boy. Uh, this is very important. This is hopefully going to end the war. You think that they would have gave them an escort because of how important that package is? Yeah. That's almost half of the United States supply of uranium. If they lost that, like <laughs> before it got dropped off, like that's kind of a big, kind of a big deal. The outcome of the war would have changed probably very dramatically you know so it was just it was just weird that just yeah and i I kind of it's hard to believe that the commander of the ship wouldn't at least be given some kind of intel i mean i understand the top secret but at his rank he should have a top secret clearance and i mean again uh to travel by yourself there's got to be some kind of contingency plan. And if you don't know what's in the package, I don't know. That's just, that's crazy that to operate that way, but I don't know Navy stuff. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I just can't. I, off, off the top of my head, I don't think that he knew exactly like the importance of, of what he was carrying. Um, if I remember correctly, but, I'm sure if I'm wrong, somebody will, somebody will correct me. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> so, and if I'm, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But yeah, so they uh, dropped off this this package at uh, the package at Tinian, and then they went over to uh, Guam. They sailed over to Guam, and a lot of the some of the sailors were their tour had ended, so they switched out and were refueling, and we're going to go meet up with the USS uh, Indianapolis, uh, US sorry, the USS Idaho at the island of Leyte, and then they were going to go join Task Force 95 and start, which the USS Nevada, the USS California was out there. They were going to do training exercises for uh, the invasion of Japan. That's what they were supposed to be doing um, until this little submarine called the I-58 was lurking in the waters and uh, changed their narrative, to say the least, and 
the story of the USS Indianapolis and the sinking unfolds here. Um, so the crazy thing is, is that they actually had intel that there were Japanese submarines in the water on the route of where they were heading uh, to Leyte. And so, I don't know, the whole communication and the way it went about, it, you know, it's one of the largest naval disasters in U.S. military history, uh, loss of life. Um, it's just, it's weird that there was no escort. And then the communication towards the end, once the Indy got got sunk, uh, is a really tragic story. So let's, let's get to the, let's get to the sinking. <laughs> so on the night of July 30th. Let me pause you right of, there. I, yeah. I want to just to slow things down real quick because we were able, there was a little miscommunication part of the show. Henry is joining us right now. So we're just going <gasps> to hang out and let Henry come in. There was a little miscommunication. I thought he was unable to join tonight, but he's actually coming in now. So, um, here he is now. And that's why I didn't want you to think I was ignoring you. I was actually uh, getting the information so I can send Henry an invite. Henry, I do apologize <laughs> due to the miscommunication. We thought you were unable to attend tonight, but we just got to the uh, section of our show where Sarah was explaining the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. So we are live now. Can you hear us all right? Yeah, I got you. Oh, no worries. Hey, Henry, you'd make a great Marine. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> You guys are T-shirt well, pals. I, I was like, what the hell, man? Are we not on tonight or what? <laughs> no, we're on. No, that was my fault. But anyhow, so we are right at the part where we're getting Back into... Back to breakdown in communication. Like, <laughs> <laughs> are we? <laughs> but we are thrilled to have the whole crew back together again. Oh, yes. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> So, uh, first off, Henry, it's good to see you again. Yeah. How, how are you? I mean, guys, if you don't want me to be here for this double date, just tell me. I mean, you know. We've had enough of you, Henry. It's time to go. Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't be the first Wait. time. Oh. oh, my gosh. Um, okay. So, Sarah, Sarah, story time. <laughs> so, uh, on the morning of July 30th, 1945, about 15 minutes after midnight, the I-58 saw the USS Indianapolis and let off torpedoes. Two of those torpedoes struck the Indianapolis on her starboard side. It hit the bow of the ship and then it hit the middle of the ship. And it completely almost annihilated the Indy. Her bow completely exploded. Everybody below deck, everybody in the sick bay, they were... Uh, pretty much covered in fire. They had fuel storage on there that caused a massive explosion from the second torpedo. They had ammunition that exploded that almost tore the Indy completely in half. Um, when the first torpedo hit, Captain McVeigh was actually in his bunk and felt, felt her shake. And he didn't know what was going on. Not a lot of people knew what was going on. And he finally got word that the ship had been hit. And so he tried to call an SOS signal out. But by that time, they had already lost power from when the second torpedo hit. And he sent out three distress signals. And he wasn't sure if they got out or not, but he kept trying. And finally, after a couple minutes, he gave the order to abandon ship. The Indy sunk in just 12 minutes from when wow. the first torpedo hit. And people think 12 minutes is not a long time. It's, it's kind of a long time. It's actually not. It's super fast, especially when the sip, the, the sip, the ship is tilting over and almost in half is flooding. Men were jumping off the, the ship. 
uh, and it, it sank, it tipped over and it sank. Men were, when they abandoned the ship, it sank so fast that men were walking off the deck of the ship into the water, just like you walk into the ocean from the beach. They just stepped off the deck right into the ocean. Yeah, I was going to say and 12 minutes. The speed of 12 minutes is relative to what level of that boat you're on when it's going down. Yeah, and it was it was insane. Men were covered in oil. They were burned from the explosion. They were injured. Uh, there was 1,195 men of the USS Indianapolis. 300 went down with the ship, and about 800, about 900, 890 went in the water. Um, the ship went down so fast that they weren't able to get so many lifeboats, uh, life preservers. And the way that they all went in the water and the way that the current was going, the way that the ship was going, all these groups, people ended up floating out really far apart. So they tried to get to these little groups as quick as they could. Um, but it was, it, it was pitch black. It was dark. One minute they're on the ship. Now they're in the water and they have no idea what to do next. And, um, people were fighting for life vests. People were trying to get on, you know, lifeboats. They were in, I, I can't remember what these little net things are called, but they were, you know, tying nets to each other to get people out of the water. And at that time they weren't really panicking because they thought they were going to be rescued very shortly. Um, and unfortunately that was not the case. And that's where the lack of communication comes in a little later. But uh, daybreak came, and this is where the tragic twist of the story comes, where you don't think about this stuff when you are on a ship like the Indy. Um, you don't think about sharks mm-hmm. in the water because you're on a ship. <laughs> yeah. Why would you think about sharks? And that became a very deadly predator for the survivors of the Indianapolis. Um they came in the morning, really early in the morning when the sun was rising and they came super and they came right at twilight when uh, the sun was just setting. But, you know, I don't think the men, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't want to pass the short thing real quick. I was just as you're talking, I was things in my mind. I don't think we stopped to think about this, but we're late in the war, you know, 45. We're in the Pacific area throughout the ocean and at this time many of ships whether american or japanese have been sank Mm -hmm. and we do know if you anybody's into hunting fishing or just watching documentaries on uh, animals animals have a learned behavior and i don't know if maybe anybody's putting thought into this but possibly by this time of the war the sharks may have learned that hey if you hear this feel this big shock wave as tends to happen mm-hmm. when ships explode and you hear this noise, they may have learned through experience that, Hey, there's going to be, that's a food source. And so by mm-hmm. this time of the war, maybe it's all hypothetical, but you, you almost wonder if this explosion would have happened earlier in the war, if there would have been as many sharks, because we know they can smell blood for miles. We know they can hear for miles and we know through animals and learned behavior. They, at that point in the war, Hey, you felt the rattle, you hear the sound. That's a food source. Let's go. And it's very scary to think about it like that, too. Because, I mean, that would imply that the amount of sharks that are there would have been more than anywhere else earlier in the war. If It's a hypothesis that I just thought of while you're talking about this. But because, I don't know, just 
the Indianapolis is the one that we hear the most about the shark stuff, opposed to other sinkings where they've pulled survivors out of the water. I don't know if maybe because they mm-hmm. spent more time in the water, but you know, when people hear about the USS Indianapolis, they they automatically think sharks. So I just mm-hmm. just stumbled across that while you were talking. About it. I was like, well, that's an interesting hypothesis, at least. I mean, that very well could be. I'm not very. Sure. I was never one to watch Shark Week. <laughs> at all on the discovery channel but so i don't know that much about sharks but that i mean that could very well be i'm not 100 sure well uh not to go too far in tangent but i'll just a little uh point of proof anybody who watches demolition ranch on youtube he has a new property out in texas and recently every time they're out there shooting the deer come because they know when they hear shooting he's usually shooting at watermelons um cool whip food items so they have learned when they hear the gunshots on his range there's food to be had and so if you kind of stretch out into the shark world it, it would kind of make sense because once again learn behavior they've learned hey when this guy's shooting his guns there might be watermelon chunks or a cool whip and so they actually flock he has to stop his videos because the mm-hmm. deer start walking on his gun range so there's kind of a, a proof of a theory there anyhow yeah i could see that i mean it's just like when i feed my dog she hears a certain sound she's like oh my god i'm getting food <laughs> I don't know you if know, one of our yeah. listeners would know the answer to this. I don't know if you know this, the answer to this, or maybe Jeff or Henry, but you're talking about they tried to send out a distress signal, but the power went out. Did most of their, do you guys know if most of their power came directly from the generators or alternators and they didn't have much battery storage? Or would the batteries have ran out that quickly after being hit that they would have instantly lost power or power quicker than they would anticipate it so they couldn't send the distress signal? Right off, I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm assuming when she's talking about uh, the lack of power, the distress signals are probably what flares uh, or something like that. You know that you don't need power. No, he sent out. He or, he called. He he. It he was tried to send out an SOS to the radio, yeah, but the gear was down. SOS. Yeah. Prior to losing power. Prior to lose, like right before they lost power, is when he out he wasn't sure if they lost power when he sent it out if he had power while he was doing it wasn't sure but it the power was pretty quickly goodbye i'm sure one of our listeners is one of those guys that's their thing is the mechanics of vessels in world war ii so i'm sure someone can email us in a mail call at wtsp world war ii let us know you know do they run off generators did they have a battery bank were they able to run off battery for not just indianapolis but that type of vessel in general be interesting mm-hmm. to, to find out but uh maybe we have a marine biologist that's listening too that can yeah answer the learned behavior of sharks sharks <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyhow sarah go ahead oh yeah so their their first day in the water was was pretty scary but they still weren't 100 panicked yet because they thought okay distress signal came, went out um you know they should know that we haven't checked in we should be rescued any you know very soon um come to find out that would not be the case you know they kept seeing planes fly over um while they were in the water but you know the planes were so high up they couldn't see them but that's when the shark attack started happening is when they finally really started to notice they say about 150 men were the victims of shark attacks and the survivors could say you could look down in the crystal clear water and you could see them just circling about 15 feet below you they would get so close up that they would like bump the you know bump the guys's legs and 
they, it was very much sneak attack. They would say that, you know, they would see somebody just floating in the water. You'd see their head and they would just disappear. And that happened frequently. They didn't know when it was going to happen. They did get to a time frame of early morning. And then also when the sun was setting is when usually they would attack. But um, so about 890 men went in the water. A lot of them were badly burnt from the explosion. They were injured. They were covered in oil. This is when the other bad part of being in the water set in dehydration, sun poisoning, um, exhaustion, all this other stuff played so many factors when you are in salt water, what it does to the skin and how fast it dehydrates you. Plus the skin, plus the sun, mm-hmm. plus you have no fresh water. Yeah. You can't drink salt water. Dehydrates salt water you. dehydrates you. People, uh, the men of the indie were having uh, delusions. They were going insane. They were hallucinating. Uh, some actually tried to drink the water and saying this is fresh water. And some saw islands and swam to the island that they imagined, you know, that they thought they saw and they ended up drowning of, of exhaustion. And with the guys who were on the rafts, you know, they pretty much stayed there. And then the guys had life preservers who were in the water too. The thing with the life preservers back then is the material they were made out of, they get really waterlogged. So they're not designed to be in the water for long periods of time. So a lot of the men started to drown and sink in these life vests, keeping themselves afloat. And so it, it became super scary and super, super tragic. And the ones who were getting picked off by sharks were the ones who were the injured, who were the weak. I, and kind of just like what Don said, I feel like the sharks probably had knew like this person is the weakest person, you know, he's the easiest target. And they were in the water for almost three days, uh, almost four days um, until they finally got spotted. Um, And when they got spotted, there was a PV Ventura flown by Wilbur Chuck Gwynn. And he was just out there flying around and he noticed these little, little specks in the water. And he was like, what are those? He goes, those are, those are people in the water. And he goes, he didn't know if they were Japanese, if they were enemy or if they were friendly. And he goes, well, they can't be friendly because we have no reports of a ship missing. So who are these people? So he ends up radioing radio back to um, his commander and he goes, I'm going to start doing a, a rescue effort. And he told him, no, he doesn't have enough fuel. He needs to, to come back to, to base. So, he started tossing out supplies to the survivors of the Indianapolis. So uh, life vests, uh, rafts, and then he started tossing off, tossing out containers of fresh water. But the thing is tossing out containers of water that high up by the time it hit the the water of the ocean, it completely, it broke. There's pretty much wooden barrels, right? There were wooden barrels. Yeah. Yeah. There were wooden kegs of water. And so, you know, but he was just, he was panicking and trying to get everything out. And, that is when Lieutenant Adrian Marks uh, heard the distress, heard the call come out that there are survivors of something in the water. And he got in his PBY and he flew to where the coordinates were that um, Gwen gave him. And he saw just uh, heads in the water. And he told his commander, he goes, I'm going to 
land my plane and, and start a rescue mission. They told him, no, they go, you're not allowed to do it. And I think he wasn't allowed to do it because they knew if he landed that PBY in that part of the water, that, uh, the plane was going to be destroyed. Uh, they didn't want to lose a plane mm-hmm. and, you know, just all these little, little things happen. Well, he did end up landing the plane and he completely, his plane became inoperable. Um, once he landed it, the swells of the waves were so high and he started pulling out rescuers of Indianapolis and he got about 40, 40, 40, 50 people inside, the, inside the plane, which that is super cramped. And then there was no room. The plane started to be really weighted. So he said the survivors who had more energy, who were more healthy, can we start strapping you to the wings of the plane? So he started strapping survivors of the USS Indianapolis with parachute cords to the wings of the plane. That's crazy. Yeah. And uh, so when that distress signal came out from Gwen and Adrian Marks, it alerted a whole, a huge rescue effort from ships all over. Um, one of the two main rescue ships was the USS Cecil Doyle and the USS Bassett. Um, they hauled butt to get to where they were. Um, it took over 24 hours to pull all the survivors out of the water um, because they were so, the groups were so spread out miles and miles away because of the current and when mm-hmm. they left the ship that it took them, you know, a while to get all the survivors. Of the 900 to 890 men that went in the water, only 316 were uh, pulled out. I think in that documentary you mentioned earlier, some of the survivors Mm -hmm. had survivor's guilt because they had floated and survived with their group for so long. And that Mm -hmm. when the rescue started, as tends to happen when you're on in water, on water or in water, things look closer than they actually are. And so, oh, that's only a few hundred yards away. Let's swim for it. And in that documentary, they explained that if they would have sat there and waited, they believed that more of their friends would have survived. But by kind of convincing them to swim for it, quote unquote, they basically got exhaustion and drowned, not being able to support their weight anymore, trying to swim to yeah. the rescue ships. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at that point, you're you're dehydrated, you're scared, you you know, you see hope and you're not in the clearest state of mind. And that happened, I think, to uh, the three three of the men who were in the water who didn't make it to uh, the Cecil Doyle. Uh, they did not make it. They just, yeah. Uh, but the, a huge rescue effort came underway. They were pulling, you know, survivors out. And I remember one of the survivors saying, you know, mind you, they had been in salt water for almost four days. They were dehydrated. They were asking the men to climb up on the rope ladders and they're like, yeah, I can totally do that. You know, and they were climbing up on the rope ladders and they were so exhausted and so injured that their skin just started to peel off because it was so dry. And uh, they ended up having to hoist a bunch of the survivors, having to pull them up uh, from the water. That's how, you know, you don't realize your injuries when you're sitting in water for so long until you finally get on dry land and you're like, oh, this doesn't feel good. And, you know, I'm completely falling apart. Yeah, essentially you've been sitting, uh, you, you're, you know, you think your hands look bad after sitting in a bathtub for an hour and a half. Imagine being in there for four days and then in the salt and then to be that buoyant. And then, as you said, try to climb a rope ladder or a net all 118, yeah. 120 pounds of you. That's going to rip right off. Yeah, so 
you know, they, they got the, they hoisted all the survivors that they could uh, pull pull up onto the, I think the Cecil, or was the Bassett? I'm so blanking on this. One of them had 151 of the, uh, pulled up 151 of the survivors. And I think it was the Bassett, but it could have been the Doyle, but I'm just blanking right now. But yeah, they had a bunch of different ships that just came to the call. And when they pulled the first survivor on the Cecil Doyle, he goes, son, where are you from? And he goes, we're from the Indian, we're from the USS Indianapolis. And he's like, what? What do you mean? He goes, yeah, we're from the Indianapolis. He goes, we didn't know the Indianapolis sunk. And so that was the first time that the survivors knew. They go, wow, nobody was coming from us. Nobody knew we were missing. Nobody knew of anything. And so um, thanks to, you know, Chuck Gwynn and Adrian Marks, they were able to round up the, (laughs) the whole, you know, Navy and get people to rescue the survivors the, so going yeah. from guam to Leyte, that that was that was the route that they were on right they've already that was yeah they they already dropped off the uh uranium at tinian they were heading they stopped at guam did kind of like a a swap of people who were done with their tour and you know restocked refueled all that stuff and then they were heading over to Leyte to go start doing training maneuvers with the uh, task force 95 to train for the invasion of Japan. And because they were on a top secret mission and the, they deemed the USS Indianapolis, such a strong boat, if it boat, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it is a boat ship. <laughs> <laughs> you can never go wrong with a vessel. I, I don't, I know. I don't know why it is a boat. Anyways. Um, they didn't, she kind of got a little bit of leeway so they weren't surprised that she didn't check in but that is actually what doomed it it doomed the indianapolis in the end and where the miscommunication came in so yeah that's that's kind of part of my i kind of have a a twofold question for you so to me once the cargo was dropped off at tinian the top secret that that part's over with and mm-hmm. they've actually had a transfer of of some crew on uh, Tinian, correct? Or Guam. On Guam, yeah. On Guam. So between Guam and Leyte, th- there's nothing top secret about this mission whatsoever. So, right? I mean, that part's, that yeah, part's over. It, there, this, is a yeah. new, this is a new mission. This is a new route that mm-hmm. they're taking. So I, it's fascinating to me that it's almost like they were just a shadow, even from Guam to Leyte, uh, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, that's that's a pretty good expanse of the Pacific Ocean. That, that's it's, not like, you know, going from Guadalcanal to Tulagi. <laughs> You're not going across a channel. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a big expanse. So I'm curious, the uh, the Ventura and the Catalina, are these aircraft, because I don't, I don't really know much about this. So are, are those aircraft, were they stationed at, Guam or, t- or somewhere in hey, the Mariana or Sarah, didn't they actually come from Peleliu? They came from Peleliu. Yeah, they were. Uh, that's that's where they were stationed at, and they were just out doing patrols. And that they just happened to f- come across the survivors of the Indy. Yeah, they were stationed at Peleliu. So that's probably the the closest landmass that they were. To, that was the right? closest. That was the closest thing. So if you and if you ever look up yeah. the map of the of the USS 
Indian, where they were at, where it sank, where the survivors were found. That was the closest thing. And it's funny looking at a map because you're like, wow, they actually were pretty close. And but in reality, you know, they weren't that close, but that was the closest land that they were by. So interesting. Well, the, mm -hmm. the other thing that stands out to me, do you, did you say earlier how much you uh, in pounds, how much uranium was on there? I know we said 60 percent, but do we have an idea how quantitative how much was on there? I, I don't know how many pounds. I said that there was almost half of the United States supply of uranium. So, so it wasn't fully half, but it was it was almost it was almost half of I'm the just, uranium that the United States had. Well, as Jeff said, you know, they go on a secret mission. They're they're transporting sixty percent of the nation's uranium. They offload it. They don't even delouse or probably even mop the area, and then they go loading up humans on there. You almost wonder. You know, any of the people who were on the vessel during that transition or who got off of it during that transition, if 80 years later, any of them came down with cancer from exposure to the radiation, you know, because it's the first time we dealt with it. I'm sure they had procedures in place, but I'm sure over time we found better ways of storing it. So you almost wonder if any of the survivors, whether during a sinking or maybe the people who offloaded after the delivery, if later years down the road, if any of them came down with cancer from just being in that close proximity to 60% of our nation's supply of uranium in 1945 technology of storage. I'm not hundred percent. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a really good. I don't know how you would even track that, but you, you have to think a small handful of people on that ship would have came down with something unless we were just that damn good. Maybe we had an abundance of um, asbestos in there that kept everybody safe. <laughs> Because that was our go-to for everything back in fireproofing, asbestos, all not uh, filters for your gas mask, asbestos, <laughs> liners for your gloves, asbestos. That was our go-to at the time. That was like their Gore-Tex. <laughs> but I digress. That's actually something I never thought I didn't even think of. I mean, I don't really know what the container, like how well secured the container was. Um, that the uranium was in, but yeah. I also wonder about how the men whose tour ended and they, you know, swapped up, you know, Guam. I wonder if they have any survivor's guilt that, you know, their tour was over. They should have been on the ship and, you know, they got off just in time. They don't uh, have to go through the ordeal of the Indianapolis sinking. Absolutely. So uh, I'm, I'm, I know enough about this to know that the story doesn't end there. Uh, the the <laughs> commander of the ship, so, somebody's somebody's got to take the hit, right? Yes. So <clears throat> after the rescue, lots of stuff came to light of what happened. Um, the distress signal did go out. It was picked up. They thought it was a one of one of. One person thought it was a trick from the Japanese. They didn't think that the USS Indianapolis could possibly be sunk. Hmm. So they thought it was a trick from uh, the Japanese. But there were some who got the distress signal, but just didn't report it because they didn't think it was real. Um, so that's one miscommunication tragedy. Um, in the end, the Navy realized that they messed up by not telling them there were submarines in the water, by not giving them an escort. Um, by not taking the distress signal seriously. And they're like, oh, shoot, you know, 1,195 men, only 316 survived. Uh, shoot, 
this is looks bad for us. So they went to cover their butts and they ended up court-martialing Captain McVeigh. Captain McVeigh is the only captain to get court-martialed for the loss of a ship during World War II. And there were over 400 ships that sank and got lost. And he was the only one that got court-martialed. He was court-martialed for failing to zigzag and negligence. Protocol. And it was... (laughs) He was a scapegoat. That's pretty much what he was. It was a scapegoat. They were bringing charges against him. Um, the charges for zigzagging didn't go through because he was told that there was no enemies in the water and that if he had to zigzag, he could do it at his discretion if he felt like he needed to. So that got kicked to the curb. And the reason why is because one of the key witnesses that testified at his court-martial was the skipper of the I-58, Hashimoto, the man who sunk the Indy. He was the key witness. And he was in court, and he was telling the, the, the court, he goes, it didn't matter if he was zigzagging. It didn't matter what he did. He goes, I was set. He goes, I would have sunk the Indy because the way that he launched his torpedoes he was anticipating for mcveigh to start zigzagging so the way that he released everything was like he was that's what he was anticipating and so out of i think it was six or seven that he launched two of them actually hit the hit the indy and he was like that was my goal and he was telling me because it doesn't matter what mcveigh did he would have that he would have sank he should not be held responsible for that well when that evidence came to light, they were, the Navy was kind of like, Oh, okay, whatever. Like we're going to, you know, drop the zigzag part, but he did get found guilty of negligence, um, of the ship and failing to call abandoned ship in a timely manner. So he got the guilty verdict slapped on him and he took it very gracefully and said, you know, like, this is, this is what it is. He ended up staying in the Navy after that court-martial. He ended up uh, retiring as a rear admiral. And years after the war, he received Christmas cards and letters from the families of men who perished with the ship, uh, blaming him. You know, uh, I hope you're having a Merry Christmas. Ours would be much merrier if you hadn't killed our son. Um, he received letters and cards like that for years after the war, because he got slapped with that guilty verdict, even though it was completely wrong. It was completely wrong. Um, sadly, uh, Captain McVeigh committed suicide in 1968, um, with his Navy, uh, revolver and on his front lawn. And, uh, after years of depression from survivor's guilt at the USS Indianapolis of the court martial. And then his wife had just died of cancer. Um, it was a tragic ending for captain McVeigh and the USS Indianapolis, but there is redemption with captain McVeigh. Um, in 1998, a young 13 year old boy by the name of Hunter Scott, was doing a history project on the USS Indianapolis. And he 
when I talk about a 13 year old kid doing research, I mean, he probably did more research than historians did. This kid was so into the USS Indianapolis and he finally realized, he goes, uh, what the Navy did to McVeigh, that's messed up. He's not guilty. So because of his project, he set in motion um, the exoneration of Captain McVeigh. And uh, finally in 2000, President Bill Clinton uh, signed into law the exoneration of Captain McVeigh. And he got his record, you know, he's no longer guilty, but that's, you know, how long after he committed suicide. Yeah. And, you know, his, his men don't blame him at all for anything. Uh, they don't think it was his fault. He survivors in the Indianapolis were trying for years to exonerate him, but nobody wanted to listen. And the Navy didn't want to deal with it. They, they were like, Nope, shut and closed. Like if we open this up, that means we have to admit that our, we were wrong and we don't want to be wrong, but you know, that's, you know, the, the story of what happened to captain McVeigh. Well, I was reading here cause you're talking about earlier how they just assumed vessels the size of the Indianapolis would survive and you're right in saying that it's crazy I'm I'm, I'm sitting here reading it said the headquarters of com- the headquarters of commander Marianas on Guam and the commander of Philippine Sea Frontier on Layette kept operation plotting boards on which were plotted the positions of all vessels in which the headquarters were concerned however it was assumed that ships as large as the Indianapolis could reach their destinations on time unless reported otherwise therefore their positions were based on predictions and not on reports. Only on July yep. 31st, when she should have arrived to Liette, Indianapolis was removed from the board and the headquarters, and they marked her as arriving to their destination strictly based on the calculated time of Google Maps saying, oh, you'll arrive at this destination at this time. <laughs> and that's what they did. That, that is, that's completely what they did. They didn't double check. They didn't do anything. They didn't cross any channels to see like, oh, was there maybe a distress signal that went out with Indianapolis? Like, or, you know, the reports when they did get those distress signals, nobody, they just tossed it in the garbage can. They're like, oh, but this is the Japanese trying to trick us. And, oh, this isn't real. Or, or somebody was lazy and just didn't take it seriously. Um, so yeah, talk about, you know, I mean, I know we're Very, at war and we're moving around a lot of people, a lot of product, a lot of men, but you figure there'd at least be a manifest that had to be turned in at the port when you're supposed to be there at a time or at least check in, you know, say, hey, all accounted for. We're going to turn uh, fuel up and turn out. But no, guess not. Yeah. And and the <laughs> Captain McVeigh gets court-martialed and found guilty of negligence um, for the ship. And... The men, I can't, can't think of their names off the top of my head. Um, pretty much everybody who was involved in the miscommunication and everything just got a letter of reprimand. So they were not to blame for what happened to the Indy. They just, uh, you should have told us. You should have told us. And that was, don't do it again. Yeah. That's kind of. I'm fascinated that there was a disbelief that the Indy could be sunk. And, and I think Henry can, can back me up on this. How many ships had we recently lost off the coast of Okinawa? Some pretty good sized ships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, wasn't there something like over 20 or, or 30 that we lost during the Okinawa? Opera? I mean, escort carriers were, were knocked out. Like, 
Yeah. And by July, combustible, like, vulnerable, and expendable. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't believe that. And, and yeah, the whole zigzag thing that that would never be admissible because the same Navy that tried to try him for that was telling him there was no threat in the water and no need for an escort. So why would you have exactly? It would have to be his discretion. Uh, if you picked up something, you know, that uh, something's a little suspicious here, we're getting something, uh, there may be something in the water, then you go to to that. But I think speed is the key to get from Guam to Leyte to, to link up with Task Force 95. So that would be, that That seems to me, if I had to put myself in his shoes, uh, and I'm glad that I never was, uh, to, to, to order the the evasive maneuvers seems to me like you're, you're really like it really, you better really convince me that we need to do this because we have got Mm -hmm. work to do waiting for us at late We have got to get there. And, um, wow. But yeah, it, it, it's, it kind of reminds me of, Oh, there, there's no way that that's a distress signal for the Indianapolis. It kind of made me think of, uh, there's a large blip on the radar, sir. Oh, that's a flight of P-17s coming from the mainland. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, just reporting. All right. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. And I just learned something here. Apparently, um, Gibson's immediate supervisor only received a letter of admonishment, admonishment which in parentheses he says is, Severe military punishment is less than a reprimand. So apparently, if you get a reprimand, that's more serious than a, a punishment. Yeah, the, it was just it was again that they were covering their butt. It was I don't know I don't know if it's because they where the miscommunication, the laziness. It, it, I feel weird saying laziness, but it was kind of lazy. This came because it was they didn't know it was the end of the war, but you know. Germany had already surrendered. They were just at war with Japan now. Maybe they were just like, you know, this is the end of the war. We don't need to be on our tip-top behavior or whatever. But it was just, if you just see all the lack, the the miscommunications and, you know, not having them have an escort as they're, you know, having one of the most important packages of the war delivered. And then, you know, not taking certain things seriously. Even if you get a distress signal and you think it is the Japanese, look into it. You know, try to communicate with Indy. You know, I don't know. It's just all these little. Then again, I, I'm not a professional or you know know all that stuff. But just looking as an outsider, it's just like why, how did this all, you know, come about? I think complacency is the is the key word there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was just a very very tragic story of the USS Indianapolis and yeah yeah it's. They're saying in the Navy's first official statement after this debacle, the Navy said that the distress calls, quote, were keyed by radio operators and possibly were actually transmitted, but, quote, no evidence had been developed that any distress message from the ship had been received by anyone. Later on, the declassified record showed that three stations actually did, in fact, receive the signals, but no one acted upon the call. So Mm -hmm. three stations did get this distress signal, but, eh. If I and actually with the distress signal, what if I remember correctly? Sorry, it's been a little bit since I um, divulged into the indie, but I think one of the one of the guys was was drunk who received the distress signal. One guy was got the distress signal, but his commanding officer said, "Do not disturb him." 
And then I think the third one was they thought it was the Japanese trying to play a trick on him. So, you know, uh, he didn't take it seriously. They, um, I think that's what happened with those three distress signals, but yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy as you were saying that, that a sixth grader, <laughs> you know, a brought, sixth grade, yep. Well, we've seen the same thing with, you know, the re-identifi- the re-identifying of the Marines during the Iwo Jima flag raising. That was brought on by a historian who had, like, his kidney removed or something, and he was laid up in the hospital reading different books and started contrasting, comparing photos between the two. And so there's another historian that shined light on a possible thing that was corrected. So you just never know. <laughs> it's, it's even cooler to think that it, a 13-year-old actually cared enough. I mean, yeah, it was 1996, but he could have been playing Sonic the Hedgehog with his friends. <laughs> it was an option, but no, he was studying on his on his book report. Yeah, and then um, also the the last commander of the USS Indianapolis, which, which was a submarine, I can't think of his name at the time, he also stuck his neck out too to help with the exoneration process and help uh, Hunter Scott and, um, and, and get Captain McVeigh exonerated, so... It, it was a it was a it was a tough journey to get him exonerated, but Captain, they ended, they they got it done. Captain so. William J. Toddy, U.S. Navy, yes, was the final mm-hmm. commander officer of the attack nuclear sub. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So so the anniversary of that is coming up. This you said Saturday. Saturday. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that you know obviously. <laughs> the last time you were on, we were talking about movies or lack thereof on the subject, and I <laughs> guess I guess maybe Spike TV could play that Nick Cage vehicle, but that doesn't oh to us any Because <laughs> we know for I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> you guys know how I feel about that movie. <laughs> I thought about you. You went, you went there, Don. You went. There. Well, I was going through Amazon Prime the other day, and as I'm sure all of your all's media is the same way, it's all recommending different World War II content. That one was up there in nice HD and a nice thumbnail. So I had a laugh, thing. Oh yeah, we're gonna be talking about that here shortly. Yeah, just Nick Cage and World War II movies. Just um, does have I think Nick Cage is an amazing. I I love him as an actor. I always have. I think he's great. Just he's not the person you cast in military World War II movies, and he was just the worst <laughs> cast for Captain McVeigh. Sorry, yeah. I won't go on a tangent about that, but <laughs> that's how I feel. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, schooling everybody on the the uh, trials and tribulations of the USS Indianapolis. And uh, before we wrap things up, uh, it's that time of the episode. Uh, hey, Henry, what you reading, fella? Um, I just started this book right here. It's called Dirty Eddie's War. It's about a Navy uh, fighter pilot, Harry March, Harry Eddie March in VF-17. He flew with um, Tom Blackburn and all those guys. Jeff, you built one of their Corsairs. So it's uh, a, a diary has come to light that, Lee Cook, the VF-17 historian, took that and then put it into book form. So that's what I'm reading now. Did the is that, We all know my lack of knowledge on all things aviation, but I don't know, maybe because my realm of study tends to be the PTO, but 
Is it me or did the Navy pilots do more flying in the PTO opposed to anything over in Europe? It seems like the European theater is all Army Air Corps. Is that wrong? Did Navy do some flying over there or was it primarily in the Pacific? Well, the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, I guess that makes um, sense. They would handle more of the sea aviation stuff. But it just, I don't know, it seems like all the stories we hear about, at least from those of us who weren't embedded deep into the aviation stuff, always seems like we hear stuff coming out of the Pacific more than we do anywhere else, at least in pop culture. Yeah, for sure. That's a gross, uh, just overstepping uh, to me um, because... I mean, I'm sure you've seen pictures of gray and white Avengers or gray and white Wildcats, and, and they're they're in the Atlantic, and and they were patrolling kind of that no man's land, that triangle between Newfoundland, uh, Newfoundland and Iceland, and of course the British Isles, and just where those uh, you know U-boats were kind of hiding out there. And if you look at a map um, of where German U-boats and I mean not just shipping. Um, you know, I mean, we sunk a lot of their shipping all through, all through, maybe even off the coast of Africa, but just look at the, uh, places that German U-boats were sunk and it will give you an idea of, uh, what the Navy was doing and, and including the aviators on their, the, you know, the combat, uh, air patrols and, um, and, and all those guys doing their thing. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible. And that um, was, if they're sinking subs, that's primarily dive bombers, right? Uh, yeah, or uh, probably Avengers armed with the four uh, depth charges oh, okay. in place because it you know they had a two thousand pound capacity, so you could carry one big like Mark thirteen torpedo or four five hundred pound bombs or depth charge. You know they were pretty pretty versatile, and they they actually did a lot more damage not carrying torpedoes, uh, even though they were primarily a torpedo bomber. But uh, yeah, British were launching Corsairs off of their carriers. I mean, the Battle for Atlantic is is it gets very overshadowed. Yeah sure yeah it's it's funny because you know when you say about atlantic to me i automatically see like the montage videos of the stuff that you would sell on history channel once i'll order this box set vhs of the battle of atlantic and that's like pretty much all i really knew about it because yeah i never read it's gonna be u-boat stuff usually yeah and so yeah so and that book's come along well yeah, man, I'm enjoying it a lot. Speaking of which, by the way, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and you can see the screenshots and um, links to order the up, the edition of World War II magazine that features Henry's article, which yeah. we're all excited for <laughs> and we all want to read. Congratulations awesome, on Henry. that. Congratulations hey, on that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I accomplish something once in a while other than just go to work and sit in a cubicle, you know. Hey, that's that's a big thing to to finally be published, especially yeah. somebody whose, you know, desire is to start putting, you know, some some content out there in the writing medium to you know have her first mainstream public article. That's that's huge, man. Congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Now and I put in a plug in my bio for WTSP. Fantastic. Jeff, you what's your co-host of WTS and what's a scale of podcast? So. Well, that's <laughs> greatly appreciate that too. Jeff, what you reading? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, based on what Sarah's been talking about, I'm going to bring you guys with me here Ooh, for a second because I have a couple gifts here that were given to me, uh, that are, that are relevant to what she's talking about. Um, so, I uh, I met a guy 
y'all can hear me, I met a guy at one of my old living history programs who um, traveled the world. The guy was very fortunate to, to basically take every trip that every World War II buff would love to, to do. Um, so he, he uh, the next time I saw him, he said, I've got something for you, you know, but next time I see you, uh, I'm going to hunt you down because I've got something I think you would appreciate. So he brought me, uh, this is sand from Guam. Nice. Near a 37 millimeter gun. That's where he, he dug it up. Then he gave me sand from Tinian. Oh my God. That's beautiful. Is there a clearly uh, a clear difference in the shade and color from each location? Actually, it's funny. The one from Guam smells like uranium. <laughs> no. no, there is. Come on, guys. <laughs> well, no, I mean. Uh, well, I've got Saipan here, too. So Saipan looks like uh, it's a lot whiter. Yeah. Um, and Guam is is much dark. Guam actually looks pretty close to what I have from, from Iwo Jima. And then the last thing he gave me uh, was gravel taken off the airstrip at Tinian, where the 29s are cool. taking off. Oh, wow. Very cool. So that's, that's cool. That's pretty that's, slick. That is cool. Yeah. To, to have that in my collection. I mean, I've got some other guys that, you know, reenacted with me that would, you know, they were active duty Navy or Coasties that uh, brought me stuff back from Cape Gloucester, from Guadalcanal. You know, like I said, I've got multiple samples from Iwo Jima, uh, Omaha. What do you have from Gloucester? What's that? What, what do you have from Gloucester, from Cape Gloucester? <clears throat> this is, it's actually a mix of Gloucester and Guadalcanal in, in this chart here. He's Man, just like, that's here, cool. Here. He's like, I just cool. had to put it all together. <laughs> you know? It's so, a casserole. Right. He's, right. Got a tuple, yeah. he's got a Tupperware tin of mud from New Britain. But, yeah, but to have something from New Britain, man, that would be cool. Yeah, I mean, it would be really cool if I was the one that brought all those back, but nice to have in the collection. So uh, what am I reading? So I'm finishing this book tonight. If you guys love B-17s, if you want to learn about the air war, this is this is it from, you know, we talked uh, two episodes ago with Dana Bell about the appreciation for aviation, um, you know, between the wars mm-hmm. and and. What's, what's the title of that book for those? Motion. What's the title of that, that for the people listening? At oh, home? yeah. So it's just Flying Forts. Martin Caden put out a bunch of books. He was a uh, just kind of a big aviation historian. Uh, this one, I think, was published late 60s. So you're looking at a guy who was an adult during the Second World War, uh, talked to a lot of um, not only veterans from the uh, Army Air Corps or Army Air Forces, but also you know, help Sabor Sakai publish a book. Um, so he traveled, you know, quite a, quite a bit to, to do his research. And in fact, he uh, kind of prides himself on being in the, uh, the right-hand seat of a B-17. And the last B-17 formation that he was aware of that flew across the Atlantic, uh, it was a part of, it was a trio of B-17s that were flying to England for the filming of and I want to say it was 1962, a Steve McQueen film called War Lover about uh, B-17s. War. I've never seen it. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll be finishing that one tonight, moving back over to the PTO, because I haven't read about the PTO uh, probably in a couple of years now. 
which is strange to say because yeah. I probably spent six, seven, eight years consecutively reading PTO. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get back uh, into that. But movies. Hold on, we gotta ask guys. Sarah. We gotta ask Sarah. We'll come back to movies. Sarah, what are you reading? Oh, um, I'm reading. I'm on a Pacific kick right now, Jeff. So I'll take care of it for you. Um, <clears throat> a Bright and Blinding Sun by Marcus Brotherton is about Joe Johnson Jr. He's uh, one of the youngest POWs uh, during World War II. But I'm about halfway through, and it's really good. It's his new book that just came out. So. Um. Yeah, that's, that's on my nightstand. I'm about halfway. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. I have my. I'm on page 108, <laughs> so maybe less than halfway through. But I have a habit of reading, of buying books and then starting to read them, and then buying more books and then doing the same thing. So <laughs> she's a sixty percent. Yeah. she gets sixty percent done and then gets distracted with a new one. Where it takes me six months to read one. <laughs> Back to movies, Jeff. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I think I lost you. So, yeah, yeah, we all movies, kind of froze up there guys, for a second. Uh, I thought, I think, um, I think you've been seeing uh, some of my posts. I've uh, been on a kick lately with my son and some of his buddies that are, uh, you know, reenactors, young reenactors that we, uh, I'm working on my, my Jeep right now. You know, you guys have seen working on my, my 42 GPW. So we're, after we're done working for the day, we're just kind of pushing it around in the driveway to be able to fold the windshield down, sit in it and watch a movie on the projector, you know, on the side of the garage there. And uh, so we've just been on this kick like, OK, let's try to watch a you know war movie that none of us have seen. You know, let's let's all you know watch it new for the first time. And guys, Battle of Britain. Two thumbs up. Oh Jay, have God. you just seen that movie? I've never seen it. Uh, yeah, I, I've never seen it. I don't know how. Man. Have you ever seen Battle of Britain? No. I'm not going to crack on you, man. I'm sincere. I love that movie. You will love that movie. I'm telling you. And you will grow to love it. I did love that movie. It was on. I I was like. It gets better every time you watch it. 39 years have I not seen this. Uh, So, yeah. Saw that for the first time on a, you know, 10 foot screen on the side of the garage. I saw your post. I was like, man, seriously. Yeah. Uh, so Battle of Britain, and then sixty-seven uh, percent amongst the uh, we watched Stalingrad, the twenty fourteen version. Was that Wolfgang Peterson? I have no idea. The same so dude who did Dust Boat. There was the nineteen ninety three Stalingrad, nah, okay. and then right. and then yeah, and I think that's the, I think that was the better one. And looking okay. back, like that one was free on YouTube. And I paid four <laughs> bucks to watch this other one last night. Eh, eh, it's okay, <laughs> but whatever. It's what you get when you none of us have ever seen it. You know, we're 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 having fun because there's so many. Yeah, I mean, I could watch Saving Private Ryan and Memphis Bell every day of my life and Patton. But uh, there are so many out there, and sometimes you do get surprised, you well, know, uh, every now and then with just a really good work. Like I was mentioning, I think the last episode, The Naked and the Dead, 1958, Alda Ray, <laughs> unbelievable movie. Um, Objective Burma and some of those early wartime productions are, you know, don't don't write them off. They're great. So real quick, as we do this from time to time, Battle of Britain. Tomato meters, 67% amongst the audience top score. I'm sorry, 
Audience score 79%, critic score 67 But it has a little thumbnail down here, and it says other movies you may like. Can you guys guess what the top critic score is for John Wayne's Sands of Iwo Jima? Oh. Give me a number, Jeff. It's like like the best freaking movie, which means that it's probably like mid-range for the critics. Okay. No number, just th- I, throw something out there. I, what what are we talking about? You, top like a, top audience, hundred uh, percent wise. How what's the percentage of critics who reviewed this movie enjoyed it? Oh, uh, I'm gonna go forty three. Henry, man, I'm totally guessing. I'll say fifty five. Sarah, I think sixty seven. I think you guys are looking at this rightfully th- so through the 2020 views of modern day movie critics, but you got to remember Rotten Tomatoes incorporates any published reviews and this movie came out in 1949. So we didn't have this anti-American anti-military sentiment 100% oh. on Rotten Tomatoes oh. going back 80% audience what? score. Yes. Including <laughs> A hundred percent for Sansa Iwo Jima, filmed in nineteen forty nine, eighty percent. But I'm interested to see what Stalingrad, the twenty thirteen equivalent, is. I didn't know they remade it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't. I don't know if you want to say they remade it. I think it's just another. It's the common title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my son and I. So Saturday night we sat in and watched Das Boat, and that, I think that was Wolfgang Peterson, and I think he did mm-hmm. the first Stalingrad. Yeah. Which yeah. I was a little disappointed in because I love anything on Stalingrad I'm fascinated by and I love DOS Boat, you know. And yeah. Okay, so. Jeff, you're the only one here who's seen the 2013 remake of Stalingrad, so I'll let you throw a number out there first. <laughs> <laughs> all, there was a hot blonde chick in it. That, that's that counts for something. <laughs> <laughs> that counts for something. So yeah. give me a number. What's the hot blonde score for Stalingrad? Uh, now, well, now hang on. I was way off with Sands of Iwo Jima. Yes, but this right. was 2013, so yeah, wrong perspective. Yeah, so this is 2013 and uh, and newer. <laughs> I'm gonna play it. I'm gonna play it safe here and just go with an even 50. percent Henry, you have no idea because you haven't seen it, but just throw a number yep. out there. 61. And Sarah. I'm gonna go 67 again. What do we give Jeff for nailing it on the head? 50% <laughs> <Did> he? <laughs> out of 74 reviewers. Critics uh, consensus. There's no arguing with the impressive production values, but Stalingrad should have devoted more attention to the screenplay and spent less on special effects to enhance the, the horrible spectacle. Oh, <laughs> uh, 50%. Don't. 41. Don't do it, guys. I'll jump on that grenade. 40, do it. 41 for the audience. So when the audience hates it, even worse than the critics. <laughs> you know, it, it's not so much that it's a bad film. It's just, it, you know, it starts out so, and I, and I, we watched the dubbed version. So anything in Russian was in English. Yeah. And then if it was in German, it was subtitled. So that was really cool. Yeah. But it starts out somebody speaking in Japanese. <laughs> and it's modern oh, wow. day. It's modern day, and and it's like a tsunami that came through Japan, or something, or 
for for Russia. I, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> and people were buried alive. And I think what happened was it's narrated from the the child of this young 18-year-old girl who was caught up with these five Russian dudes in Stalingrad. Hmm. Okay. So and I think that's it's a girl, but it's narrated, it's dubbed over with a guy's voice. And I think they try to go back at the end of the movie that this is the daughter but you're listening to a guy's voice the entire time so you think she had a son that's my own and i'm not saying that's what happened but that's gotta be the only way it's like the production that sounds so confusing we're like how does this get to a tsunami and japanese people in 2013 how do we make this connection we've been in selling for two hours oh but yeah i don't i'm just assuming the dub version is very misleading we'll just give it that you kind of you kind of dipped your toe into it with your your jars of uh, sand that were given to you, and you kind of made the joke it would be cooler if you were to acquire them yourself. So that brings up a nice little question before we wrap it up. If you guys can go on any battlefield tour or vacation trip to see, you know, historical sites, where would you go? Let's go ahead and start with Jeff because you kicked it off with the sand. Well, first off, I want to say uh, Sarah's already been to France, so showed up. <laughs> I was there for work. I didn't get to go do anything. Work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're working right now. Uh, I know. And I was there on yeah. D-Day, but I was uh, nowhere no big near deal. Normandy, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that that's a question I've been asked a hundred times, and I don't I don't have a direct answer. I mean, if we're, we're obviously we're strictly talking World War II because... I mean, I'd like to see some some ancient battlefields, uh, but you know, I really think that I would make a connection to just some of the uh, some of the bomber bases in England. Honestly, there's a lot of guys that died there too. Um, so, uh, I think if I could go anywhere, World War II battlefield related. Yep. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to vacation in London. Woo! Let's watch it rain. <laughs> if I could go anywhere else, but. I, I, I would like to see I would like to see those. And if Leighton Hughes is listening, he's promising me a tour. So he listens. <laughs> right. Henry. I mean it I I can think of both Pacific and ETO. ETO I'd love to go to the Ardennes, see where my uncle fought in Battle of the Bulge. Mm-hmm. Uh Pacific, I mean I've been to Peleliu. I've got a couple of people after me to go back and I want to go back. But I mean I'd love to see Guadalcanal. Sarah? Um, I mean, I've always wanted to do this. My OPA was in the 4th Armored Division. He was a staff sergeant in the 4th Armored Division from the beaches to Bavaria. I would love to go all over Europe, see the where he had been. You know, he was at the Battle of the Bulge. Um, all this, I would love to do that. I know it sounds cliche or whatever. Everybody says the you know, the European battlefield, Battle of the Bulge, but I really want to. That's, that's a goal. <laughs> so. Well, in an effort to actually try to make this happen, I would love to do the PTO, but I know to get the family to go trudging through the jungles of Guadalcanal, probably not high on the priority list, but I'm thinking if I can convince them, hey, we're going to go tour Europe, that might be something we can save up for and actually make happen. But I don't think I can sell them on uh, <laughs> knee deep into, you know, sharp grasses of, you know, Peleliu or anything like that. So as much as I would love to go to the PTO, mm-hmm. I'm thinking a more logistically 
achievable goal would be maybe a Banner Brothers tour, one of those types around there. And I, it wouldn't be too hard to convince the family to, to make that happen. So that's where I'm kind of thinking. But uh, yeah, I don't know for for me. I know uh, my wife always talks about going to Fiji, and I'm trying to like, you know, tar what looks just like it, <laughs> minus the lack of recycling and trash and the diapers on Red Beach I was One. Say like, you can probably fly to Tarawa for like seventeen dollars American because it's not Fiji. Yeah, just don't let her watch the anti-tourism uh, documentary called The Return to Tarawa. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. oh. That was such a yeah. sad, sad documentary. But uh, b- before we wrap it up, uh, Henry, you got anything come down the pike you want to plug? No. You got anything on your list of things you want to talk about on this episode? No, I'm good, guys. Y'all already plugged it for me. So, Jeff. Yeah, I'm a I'm a new subscriber to World War II magazine, thanks to Henry. So that's just great. I mean, I'm so happy for him. Uh, I I mean, so, uh, seriously, like I I would love to be published as well. And if you're gonna do it, I mean, he, he made the cover. Yeah. Luckily, they didn't I was not expecting that. I mean, I really wouldn't. That's amazing, though. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. Uh, well, thank so, you. No, just uh, yeah, that's awesome, Henry. Well done, man. Well done. Well, I appreciate it, guys. But you know, they don't call him old humble Henry for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, sir? You got anything to plug? Um. No, just I have my history behind the page, the Instagram live series um, where, you know, you guys have been on it. And Henry, I would love to have you on it uh, sure. in the future here. And actually, um, I, I'll be seeing you next month at the Band of Brothers Symposium. Yeah, yeah. I was so I, that was why I should have mentioned that. So Layton is yeah. coming over. So Layton's going to come said, home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to come <laughs> over and stay with Henry for four nights. <laughs> so we may actually do the puzzle the podcast please you know, him and me together for whatever that next monday night is please yeah, the, the 20th symposium what's the date yeah, of the symposium is it 13th. august 13th august, yeah, okay august 13th is a saturday yeah they just sent out yeah. the, the cast the, all the guests who are going to yep. be there and today and all that stuff so it's going to be a uh, super fun and i'm thinking of doing a history behind the page there live but we'll see we'll see uh, how much of the world war ii museum i can actually get in <laughs> So that might I, I just want to see the museum. I mean, I haven't. Been I know, there me too. Years. I've never uh, been there. So. Never been there either. I'm excited to go. It'll be fun. So, yeah, just history behind the page. That's pretty much my whole thing. It's every uh, once a week, uh, either Thursdays or Saturdays. So, that's kind of all I'm doing. <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing all your uh, information and love for the USS Indianapolis and all things World War II. And we appreciate everybody else to con- for continuing to support the podcast. I think we hit all the plugs at the beginning, but if you want to while you're over at WTSPWorldWar2.com, go ahead and click on the merch link and get yourself a sweet-ass WTSP shirt, kind of like the one Jeff and Henry are wearing, their T-shirt buds tonight. Uh, that is the beautiful microphone with the M1 helmet. Fun fact about that shirt, that is my helmet and my microphone that I painstakingly deleted out the background of my studio with adobe photoshop for hours to make those shirts so thank you guys for buying them Um, that's actually the first microphones we've had but uh thank everybody for your continued support of what we do and we will talk to everyone next week this has been a digital 410 production (laughs) 